Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. So you may or may not be aware, it's World Immunisation Week starting later this week. So joining us, who else really, but delighted to welcome back Dr. Jonathan Pearson Stuttart, Head of Health Analytics at LCP. Hi, Dan. Hi, Mary. Good to be with you again. Hi, Johnny. So, Johnny, big question in my mind. Did you know that it was World Immunisation Week? I have to say it hadn't come up on my radar. Well, it's definitely one that I suspect will be more topical and have more coverage this year than it has done in previous years. And one of the things we're seeing generally, or we're hoping that the really impressive vaccine uptake we're seeing in COVID might have a beneficial spillover effect for some of those vaccines like the MMR and things that we've seen slightly lower coverage in the last few years, you might hope. So there'll be a bit of fanfare, I'm sure, and for all good reason. Oh, and that's a really nice positive side effect that could come out of this as well. Fantastic. Absolutely, because it's the MMR rates, which it's so sad when you have a vaccine that works and has worked for a long time. And it started obviously with the Wakefield stuff back around the 90s that led to the declining in the MMR rates. And we've seen it being pretty stubborn over the last few years. And there were sort of pockets across the country and across the world of this sort of anti-vax movement. And so if the COVID vaccination program, how well it's going and how well I'm sure it'll continue to go, if a side effect of that is that we increase the uptake in some of those other vaccines, especially those which are aimed at children, I think that would certainly be a nice outcome. Cool. I mean, Johnny, it's been fascinating hearing from you during the last year or so, obviously during such an unprecedented sort of pandemic. It's been fascinating hearing your insights, to be honest. We've spoken to you, what, probably every sort of three months or so. And there's been some times when you've sounded relatively pessimistic, some times when you've sounded more optimistic. And just before we went on air, we were looking back to the last time we spoke to you, which was actually on the 27th of January, where we talked about it being COVID's most uncertain moment back then. Yes, it's incredible, isn't it? A, that that's three months ago, and B, how the world looks now, both in the UK and wider than that, than when we looked three months ago. And I think when we spoke three months ago, the vaccination program had just got going in a few weeks or so. And I think not many would have thought initially that that mid-February target would have been hit, and it was more than hit, and that the progress since then in the UK has been really impressive. I think there was definitely a concern that almost we didn't want to get ahead of ourselves. I think I certainly felt sitting as a non-expert in this area that we'd been sort of potentially over-promised that things would get better a few times in a row during the course of the last year. And by January, it was just sort of like, okay, just give me the worst case and anything will be better than what I'm expecting. And it's really been really nice in the last few months to see things go better than many people expected, I think. Absolutely. It's such an odd 12 months. If you think back to now we're sort of 13 or so months on from when the pandemic hit in earnest in Europe. But for that first eight or nine months, the UK sadly was pretty much at the bad end of the table, whether it was case numbers, hospitalization, or excess death numbers. If you look since January, and even just sort of across the channel to Europe, what's been so interesting is just how divergent the trends have been. From beginning of January, we actually, having last year at various points, the lockdown being criticized for not being either sort of restrictive enough or put in place enough, clearly 
looking back, one might have put in a lockdown slightly earlier than after Christmas, but that we were then the most restrictive lockdown across Europe in that period for January and February. And alongside that, the vaccination was rolling out so well across the UK. And you contrast that with many of the major European countries who the opposite were the case. The lockdowns weren't as restrictive as ours and the vaccination rollout wasn't going as smoothly. And it's amazingly different, the sort of fortunes over the last three months here as to other areas of Europe. I suppose a lot of comparisons between countries have ended up being a little bit premature, haven't they? But there's also the temptation to sort of just compare countries on the metric du jour kind of thing, which right now is vaccination rates. But even that doesn't tell the whole picture, does it? I suppose in the fullness of time, there needs to be a lot of presumably academic work that's going to go on to try and get a proper sense of what the international picture was like. Yes, I think that's right. And I think it's obviously fantastic that the UK are rolling out the vaccinations so smoothly now and that we've seen the death rates, the hospitalisation rates all come down extremely impressively above and beyond the lockdown effect because of the vaccines. That clearly doesn't take away the 120,000 excess deaths that we've seen in the last 12 months. And I think it would be nice to say that some lessons were learned perhaps for this time, but even still, this January lockdown was perhaps again too late, but that let's hope that those lessons have been learned. I think what was reassuring to me actually was when this roadmap for coming out of this lockdown was laid out and then everything that's gone since was unlike those prior lockdowns or measures there was very much a different tone to it from the government around this is the earliest this might happen and that these are checkpoints five weeks apart so that we can see the impact and so forth and it does seem so far that it's been a very more sort of cautious route out of this lockdown in the hope that it's the last one or the last one of its kind anyway yeah because i remember that was one key thing you said last time there was the sense that there was a bit of recognition that maybe the UK government had been slow, but that this had to be the last one so that people could sort of live with it as long as it really was the worst of it now and that after it was going to get better. So there was this sense that it probably was going to be a bit longer and and slower coming out of it. Thinking specifically about the vaccines, I guess there's, as with many of these things, there's a sort of a supply and demand dynamic, isn't there? So we need to have enough supply of the vaccine, but we also need enough people taking up the vaccine. It feels like there's been a really good level. I mean, clearly the numbers are looking great in terms of the population in the UK, at least, that's been vaccinated. When you look at the sort of underlying dynamics, are we seeing the trends we'd expect to see? Are sufficient people taking up the vaccine when they're offered it? That sort of thing. I think at the population level, it's been really encouraging when they've worked through the age groups, really around 95% or even higher of people have been taking up the vaccine in those over 80 groups, over 75 and so forth. I think there was a combination both of some initial provisional data plus lots of anecdotes across the NHS that uptake across NHS staff was lower than one perhaps would expect and hope and that similarly in care homes and that's led to really interesting discussions that for years there's been the discussion and debate around should the NHS mandate flu vaccines within its staff because vaccine rates have always been pretty low really in NHS staff proportionate to what one would expect and this discussion's now read its head again because of the lower rates in some areas of the NHS and certainly in care home staff as well and given the vulnerability of the patients or residents in both of those settings you can see why that sort of debate has come up again. And any thinking Johnny on some of the data we have now on the vaccines because obviously there have been so many what is it 33 million now I think it's saying in the UK shots done millions more overseas obviously plenty of headlines around side effects clots and those sort of things Is there a sensible data set to look at yet or are people being a bit reactive, those sort of risks? I think what's been really quite encouraging with the UK data is we've had these two different forces over the last three months going from we had very high daily mortality rates or excess death rates 
in January, hospitalization rates and so forth, and case numbers. And each of those have come down over the last three months and come down you know, across the whole population and continually, really. But what's been really encouraging is the largest decline. So the most benefit we've seen over the last three months, the age groups that have seen the greatest decrease in mortality rates, the greatest decrease in hospitalization rates are those age groups who've had the vaccinations. And so it's a really nice live natural experiment where you're seeing does this work? Do these vaccines work? And how long does it take for them to work? And at that population level, we've seen those groups who've had the vaccines get the highest benefits over the last few weeks, which is really encouraging. I think obviously now the key will be in those first few weeks, it was around those over 85s, over 80s and over 75s, who largely comprise most of the highest risk of death. But obviously the second big outcome that we look at is hospitalisation. One of the challenges with hospitalisation is, of course, that it was those middle age groups between 50 and 70 year olds who, when they're admitted to hospital, they tend to actually be in hospital for longer because fortunately more of them tend to survive than their older counterparts. But that means the hospital bed is occupied for longer, pressure on hospitals are bigger. And so actually when the lockdown came in in January, it was those very high hospitalization numbers, which were so concerning because when a hospital's full, if you turn up with COVID, a car crash or a heart attack, your care is going to be compromised. So I think it's this next month or two as well now, as we've moved past the over 50s having their first dose, that group having their second dose and then into the younger adults, that'll be really reassuring again. There was that data, wasn't there? We were discussing it, I think, a little bit last time where people trying to predict, because when we sat down last time, I mean, I think deaths were still running at a sort of thousand a day type numbers, weren't they? Which they were for quite a long time and hospitalizations were through the roof in January. So it was really incredibly high levels, almost quite hard in some ways to remember back to then because it feels like it's so far away in some ways. But there was that work that had been done by the actuaries group, I think, trying to plot when those deaths would start to fall off. And the piece of work, they got quite a lot of coverage. And at the time, it seemed to be suggesting that the deaths would start to fall quite far, surprisingly soon, with the effect of the vaccine getting through. But that more or less panned out, didn't it? Yes, absolutely. And you should say that bit of work from the COVID actuaries group has been widely cited, both certainly the chief medical officer cited it several times, and I think the prime minister. And it was really helpful to be able to say, what should we expect if the effect in real life of these vaccines is as good as we've seen in the trials. And I think even then, when we spoke in November, when the trial data had just come out, we were all really shocked in a positive way as to how impressive the data was from the trials. But to then see that translate into the real world, as they call it, once you're out seeing, does this translate into fewer hospitalizations, fewer deaths, was all reassuring. And it has broadly played out just as with that as well. What was then interesting is that first stage of lifting restrictions around children going back to school is at the same time we saw a big increase in testing so many more of these lateral flow tests being used and so that does sort of make the data a little bit more noisy because you're not comparing like with like more tests different types of tests but largely there wasn't as big an increase really on daily number of cases and things as one might have feared when children go back to school we've obviously had this now break for easter for two weeks but it'll be really interesting to see as we go back to school this week and next whether those case numbers sort of stay around about where they are and similarly if there are any increases in case numbers does that filter through to hospitalizations and deaths or in fact now are those groups vaccinated and that should protect from that dan mentioned very very briefly and i suppose from sitting in the uk it's appeared to be a big driver of some of the lesser rollouts across Europe is some of these stories that we're hearing about side effects, so things like blood clots and that sort of thing. I'm really interested in your observations on not just how that's being handled, but kind of what does the science actually tell us and what do the numbers actually say on those? 
Absolutely. I think it's been a fascinating case study with some really poor communication and frankly, some reckless communication. And when we think and look across to Europe, at the time when the greatest debates about the AstraZeneca vaccine were being had, the daily case numbers and hence daily death numbers in Europe were really high. And so there's been various different estimates as to that, A, that delay in that, but B, the impact it may or may not have had on vaccine uptake. There will have been avoidable deaths because of that. In terms of the risks aspect, there's a fantastic professor of risk and statistics, David Spiegelhalter, who's written sort of almost weekly throughout the pandemic about what does this risk mean? And he was the first to say last year, when the first bits of COVID data came out to say, actually, that risk of dying from COVID is almost perfectly parallel to the baseline risk. So it goes up with age just the way that all-cause mortality does. And he's written some fantastic pieces that are well worth a read around contextualizing these risks of blood clots that have been discussed and found in these trials, how that varies across populations. You also have to compare if there's been this many blood clots in this population, what would we have expected anyway as a baseline risk rather than comparing with none? So I think largely it's been a bit of a lesson in communicating risk and communicating the risk of side effects of which all medicines have that. And whenever any regulator or any physician is prescribing anything, they're always balancing up the risks with the benefits of any treatment. It is fascinating that the way that risks come into the discussion here and just simple things that you realize aren't certainly think about all the time. I mean, the one really powerful thing that I think David Spiegelhalter wrote last year that I thought was really good was, I think what he said was, to understand your risk of dying from COVID, it's like packing a year's worth of mortality risk into two weeks. So in other words, if you're relatively young, that's taking a small risk of dying and packing it into two weeks, which is still quite small. Whereas as you get older, if you're in your 80s, chance of dying in a year is not low and packing all that into two weeks sort of increases. So when I read that, I was like, oh, wow, that's something useful that you can sort of use and understand. And it really, cut, to my mind, it really cut through what was at the time quite a bizarre polarized debate around saying, oh my God, it's killing thousands of people on the one hand. Other people saying, what are you talking about? The death rate is like 1% or something, and it's no worse than the flu sort of thing. That was where the debate was at the time sort of thing, wasn't it? Yes, absolutely. And it's a sort of age-old challenge with reporting and journalism as well. I mean, you'll always find food is a great one for making good headlines, that bacon's killing you, and that you'll see that the increase in risk when you look at relative, for example, having two portions of bacon a week might increase your risk several fold compared to if you didn't have the bacon, when you look at that absolute risk, it's still minuscule. And so the difference in absolute risk and relative risks are really important in terms of conveying these, as is then comparing it with baseline risk. So there's been obviously lots of comparisons about with, for example, the AstraZeneca vaccine, what that means in it and what we'd expect in terms of number of clots in a normal population at any given time anyway. The other, I guess, interesting anecdote that I've heard, which I guess does relate sort of to side effects, although not necessarily serious ones, is so some people have the vaccine and they feel absolutely fine immediately afterwards and others effectively get a bit of a cold for a few days and I think in worst cases more like a week. I've heard a theory, and I'm afraid I can't remember where it came from, so it may have absolutely no science behind it, but the younger population might on average expect to have a bigger reaction because, for example, they're not used to getting the flu jab regularly and so their body's not used to having that sort of vaccine. Is there any science in that at all, or have I just heard that on the street and believed it? In some ways, there's no rhyme or reason. In other ways, there are. I've been helping with the vaccine clinics up at St Mary's, and after the first dose. The next day I had the worst headache I've ever had, getting worse during the day, no temperature or anything, just a really bad headache. 
feeling pretty awful. After the second dose was pretty much fine. Now, when you think of what a vaccine is aimed to do, it's to create an immune response to then build the antibodies to protect that. So your body, it's just like when you're feeling unwell or when you've got an illness, whether it be a virus or otherwise, you're feeling really run down. And that's partly because your body's fighting back against whatever the bacteria or virus is. And so it's not dissimilar in that exactly how it's different across people. I'm not sure. And I'm sure lots of it is unknown, but it is amazing how Pfizer, AstraZeneca, across all of the vaccines, there have been a real spread of side effects as they are with all vaccines, but they've been felt by some people and not by others at all. So Johnny, going back to the risk and to the data point, there's been a lot of live data that's been produced throughout all of this. We had the sort of daily dashboards from Public Health England and all that. And obviously your team at LCP have been producing a COVID tracker as well, which has been really helpful. I found it a really beautiful data visualization, actually, of how things are changing across the country, across several different dimensions. So we'll link to it in the show notes. And I was just going on it because I was just trying to compare actually where we were case-wise now versus back when we last spoke sort of on 27th of January. But I discovered that you've actually discontinued it. Did you want to update us on where you got to with that and when you closed it out? Well, thanks, Dan. It's been a fantastic piece of work led by lots of the team, but but really started by Andrew Piper and Tim Camfield in their spare time initially, and then developed into this. And the purpose behind it was always that when the pandemic initially started, data was obviously very sparse. And part of that was because we didn't have enough testing and testing other data points. Whereas from sort of autumn onwards, we had these two regular official numbers. One was the Public Health England daily cases, which are those who had symptoms, so asked for a test, got a test, how many were positive. And that was relatively up to date, two or three days behind. The second was this ONS survey, which is a sort of random population sample. Doesn't matter if you've got symptoms or not, what's the prevalence? And so the idea of the tracker was to be as up to date as the Public Health England estimates, but as comprehensive of the ONS estimates and get down to that granularity of lower tier local authority system. And so broadly using a couple of statistical techniques and some actuarial ones just to sort of combine those two data sets see what the patterns were and project and it was really we felt that we were able to provide a service there in looking at how the because clearly the prevalence of covid can change so quickly how it was changing where it was changing and to be a couple of days ahead of some of the official estimates to inform that now with all modeling clearly there are limitations but that we hope we're able to provide that really useful service now one of the things that's changed in the last couple of months is Firstly, that the amount of testing that's been done has just increased phenomenally. Combined of the PCR tests and the lateral flow tests, PCR tests as they are lateral flows with their limitations, but can be done at scale and be done very quickly. And so the combination of that plus the very low prevalence numbers we're seeing, and we felt that the value that we were adding with the COVID tracker was much less than it was a few weeks and months ago. So we've paused it for now and we hope that that's paused forever, but that it's clearly there for us to start up again if it's needed. Were there any sort of very high level trends for the time that you were running the tracker? Are there any sort of highlights that you could pick out or particularly interesting moments where the data sort of gave you a new insight? I think what was really interesting was there were two analyses, particularly I remember at the time, that were a few days ahead of any of the official data, actually, that we picked these trends up. One was in December when we'd had the November lockdown where the cases had declined, new daily cases declined about 50%. And then we were seeing this real uptick in cases nationally, but actually driven by London and the Southeast in early to mid-December. Now, clearly at that time, we didn't have any idea that it was a new strain, the so-called Kent strain. But the LCP COVID tracker was clearly showing that the case numbers were really accelerating. And 
something was driving that. Now, we picked that up around mid-December. And then when we looked at how the different tiers that different areas were in, the substantially different increases between Boxing Day and then the lockdown coming in around 10 days later, really showing that tier four did work much better than tier three and much better than tier two. And so we identified that and published it and hopefully played our part in contributing to getting on top of it. But then on the flip side, the sort of good news aspects was that it was relatively early in the January lockdown. Again, the the tracker picked up the peak number of cases. I think it was around 90,000 or so daily cases that we were estimating there were. And that turning point soon after the lockdown had come in, which again turned out to be where the official estimates fell as well a couple of days later to say that it was on that day that we'd seen the turn. So both of those, I think, were really useful. One was good news, one less good news, but really to pick up the trends quicker than the official data was, which just really flags reasons to look at it more closely, look what the reasons are, but importantly, to act quickly. It's really interesting. As I say, it's a lovely data visualization. I'm just on there now looking, and it's so interesting the way you can combine different dimensions of data in one visualization. You've got sliders to move around and colors, so all the things are jumping out at you. It's really good. But just for completeness, some of the stats, like you say, the turn looks like it came around 3rd, 4th, 5th of January, I think, was that sort of turning point in the numbers. And when you discontinued the tracker, two weeks ago, the cases were down roughly by about 90% from the peak, I think it was saying, yeah, he's saying about 200 cases per 100,000 when it was stopped versus something like 2,600 per 100,000 at the peak and slightly less than that when we last spoke or a couple of thousand per 100k when we last spoke. So down to about 10% of that level. But I guess still a long way to go to the sort of numbers we were looking at last summer when they were very low, weren't they? It's a good point, actually, because it's completely gone off the headlines, but it's not zero, is it? It's not. The difficulty is comparing the numbers now. So the ONS estimates we can compare in terms of their prevalence estimates, although they haven't been doing their incidence estimates in the same way or or as regularly as they were previously. But, for example, the PHE data, now with all of the LFT tests, you're getting much closer to the sort of proportion of true cases that you're capturing that way. But it's still coming down. One of the difficulties, obviously, is we'd expect it to either the decline to slow down or even be a slight uptick with the opening of pubs and things like that. The question, I think, is, and the big one is, is that translating into hospitalizations and mortality in the next few weeks? So as we look forward from this point, are you feeling quite optimistic, Johnny, about how things go from here? Yes, I am. I think, as you'd expect as an epidemiologist, with the caveat of caution, but that undoubtedly it's really impressive. I think if you look back in January, Very few people would have truly thought that we'd be where we are now at the end of April with clearly an awful lot of lives lost in January and February, but the rate at which the vaccination has been rolled out and how effective it appears to be. There are clearly lots of questions going forward, which we'll come back to, but I think where we are now in mid-April, things are looking likely that the next phase of restrictions will be lifted and then on we go to June onwards. And as long as the vaccination continues to be rolled out well, and it is as effective as we hope, then I hope that that can combine it. But there'll be several sort of risks within that as well. So whilst it's very optimistic and positive compared to where a few months ago here in the UK, on a global level, there's as many new daily cases and as many daily deaths than there's ever been in the pandemic. In Europe, things are pretty bad. But if you look in places like India or Latin America, they're really looking pretty awful at the moment. And vaccine rollout is a lot further behind than where it is here. So I think we're likely to have sort of a real very different 
sort of second half of 2021 for different countries. And that's probably going to roll over to next year as well. So should we maybe touch on that briefly? So the big question about travel, and I know Boris is yet to announce fully what that will look and feel like for us. But so assuming things go to plan in the UK and we have all lockdown measures released on the 21st of June, fantastic news for us sitting here in the UK. But how likely do you think it is that we get abroad holidays this year? They've flagged this traffic light system, haven't they? This sort of green, amber and red system. And I think that there are those countries where you can see are more likely to be on the green list sooner than others, both either because they've got very low rates of COVID itself, they've got high vaccine coverage, and or that they control any sort of mutant strains with sort of restrictive measures and things. So I think when we look to areas like the US, obviously, I've still got fairly high case numbers at the moment, but are rolling out the vaccine pretty quickly. I think it's not unforeseeable to see slightly smoother travel to them, perhaps around the autumn time. Whereas when we're looking at Europe, it's pretty difficult to see that one would have travel without quarantining for quite some time yet. I think it goes way beyond the sort of epidemiology of it. And very much these are political decisions. But one can certainly see that if the UK has removed all of the restrictions and actually the economy is beginning to improve, then one might want to sort of do what they can to protect that domestic economy. What we learned a lot from the genetic sequencing, which is so impressively done here in the UK, is just how much seeding, as they call it, whereby both last March from skiing holidays and then last summer in the summer holidays, how many individual instances there were of people who live in the UK going abroad on holiday, coming back with COVID and then spreading it and passing it on. And when we get to the point of hopefully controlling things and opening up a little bit more, you can see that that's certainly a scenario you want to avoid. And I suppose there's, you want to avoid it because you want to avoid another national lockdown, which clearly has an impact on the economy. You want to avoid it for the sort of human life element, of, of course. But actually restricting international travel when our own tourist industry has been struggling so much, I guess. I don't know if everyone in the UK holidays in the UK, it probably doesn't quite compensate for the usual numbers of tourists in particularly tourist hotspots. But I guess it helps to some extent, doesn't it? It certainly does. All of these decisions are just so unenviable, aren't they? Because whichever decisions made here, there are still losers. The travel or the international travel industry clearly have had an awful 12 months and they'll continue to suffer if these types of restrictions in place. But as you say, on the flip side, domestically, tourism, hospitality have also had a horrendous 12 months. So it's certainly, you wouldn't, well, I wouldn't want to be a minister making any of these decisions at the moment. They're pretty unenviable. Yeah, it's going to be tough, isn't it? Especially when a lot of people have been vaccinated. I feel like it's going to be tough to constrain people too much in terms of traveling or um, people are just going to be wanting to get out and do stuff and we'll just go ahead and do it. I think so. So looking ahead, Johnny, we get past this year, we get international travel up and running again. Do we currently expect a sort of annual booster type approach to be what we go with for COVID? I think it's certainly likely that that would be the case, whether that's the whole population or perhaps more likely for the types of populations who would have the annual flu vaccine, for example. And partly with that, it depends what are the circulating strains of COVID at the time. And then lots of questions about the vaccine that we currently don't know, like how long does the protection from the vaccine last? And how well does that protect you against other strains that are either around now or might be coming down the track? I think it's not unforeseeable that we could see a sort of autumn round of boosters or new vaccinations within specific groups, definitely. And Similarly, as with all very contagious viruses, they spread well in winter, as we've seen this year. And it's not unlikely that we'll see that again next year. The difference would be, hopefully, we've got a high degree of protection across the nation and communities because of the vaccinations. And that that also then allows more resilience in the system 
to cope with that, but also flu if we have a worse flu year next year, and then the usual sort of ailments that we see in winter. Yeah, so you're sort of saying we won't really know until we've properly been through another winter in terms of where we are coming out of all of this in terms of potential impacts. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's winter's always been the toughest time of the year for healthcare systems. This year, we didn't have really much or if any flu going on at all. Who knew social distancing works for flu? And so we would expect as life is more normal, certainly this autumn, hopefully than last autumn, we're likely to see more flu, but it's not unlikely to see some COVID as well. It's just a question of A, how much and B, whether that transmission of COVID leads to sort of poor outcomes, hospitalizations and things like that. And in terms of the vaccines, well, you and I have chatted a little bit about this, Johnny, about the sort of commercial side of it. I think what you were saying was that it sort of makes sense longer term for it to sort of be a little bit of a winner-takes-all game and there being kind of maybe one provider of choice of vaccine, I don't know, one, maybe two, but that it wouldn't be economical for all these firms to be producing vaccines longer term. So it might coalesce around a smaller group. Is that sort of still your thinking? And is it just far too early to say who that might be? I think one of the challenges at the moment is there's certainly still far too much demand for the amount of vaccine that is being supplied and or the sort of infrastructural challenges and that each vaccine has its pros and cons around that. Obviously, the AstraZeneca vaccine has been supplied at cost and just requires sort of usual fridge temperatures, unlike the Pfizer initially, obviously, which required these really quite low temperatures. There's something as well, though, about we don't yet know whether future sort of vaccines that might be used on an annual basis, whether they'd stay with the two doses or the one doses, but you can certainly see a logistical benefit generally for a one dose and even more so in low middle income countries. So I think those types of things around the infrastructure requirements, the cost, one dose versus two, do you need to do it every year? Who needs to have the vaccination? Would definitely all play into that. So I suspect we're still some way off that becoming clear, especially because there are still some vaccines very much still to come. I've read some stuff on the sort of stock analyst side, some of the numbers this year, potentially massive in terms of the additional earnings coming to some of these companies, Pfizer being an obvious one, potentially big numbers of earnings, but people have been making the point that that's not the way pharmaceutical companies are normally valued. The analysts are used to seeing these recurring long tails of revenues going into the future, and they're quite used to pricing that into the stock, less so a one-off bump for a lot of stuff that's coming in the short term. Yes, absolutely. And I guess the comparators probably would be things like the flu vaccine and other vaccines, albeit with other vaccines, actually, it's probably fewer. MMR vaccine, you have the doses, but you don't have it every year of your life. And there's certainly a smaller population who have that each year. Certainly, it's a very different model to a diabetes drug, which clearly would be every day, every week, but for many years, hopefully. And the vast majority of you know, the bulk has been around that type of model over the past few years. You said right at the start, Johnny, that one of the potential positive outcomes of this vaccine rollout, I suppose, is less sceptics and so a bigger take up of various vaccines. Have you got any thoughts on the impact that this almost experiment will have on the future development of vaccines? So I know that when people were first talking about lots of different companies are trying to develop vaccines to tackle COVID, and there were some sceptics saying, well, they've been trying to develop vaccines for certain other diseases for years and years, and they've never managed to. And yet, here we are only about six months later, and we're in such a good position. But does that mean that all future vaccine development is easier or the the connections between different countries working on the same sort of thing are that bit stronger? I think there's two main areas you could look at. One is if or when another pandemic were to hit and we've had obviously Zika, we've had Ebola, we've had SARS-1 all in the last 20 years. So it's not a question of if but when and then what type of pandemic is it? And 
one would definitely hope that in terms of coordination, both sort of internationally, but also then coordination between governments, pharmaceutical companies, academics and health service providers have just been fantastic over the last 12 months. And hopefully we're at a better starting place now if that were to be required in the future. But then the second part is that, as you say, some of these vaccines had been tried and not succeeded previously, which is clearly fantastic that they have. How's that worked and what can they be applied to? Whereas others are brand new sort of technologies themselves with the RNA vaccines. And so I think that clearly is very much a start now as to how that can be applied to other conditions and really rolled out further. And there's been lots of sort of discussion and excitement about the types of other conditions that they could be targeted to. And so hopefully that can be something good that comes out of the obviously huge investment across life sciences over the last 12 months. That's certainly something that's jumped out from some of the articles I've read. Obviously, um, the likes of Moderna has done incredibly well, sort of the stock price and the amount of capital and interest in that firm over the last year or so has been stratospheric. But one thing that I read, and I've probably, I'm simplifying this too much, but but some people are likening it a little bit to a sort of like an iOS operating system where you can sort of tweak a line of code and put that into a drug rather than having to create a whole new sort of device around it. And then once you have that delivery system, the possibilities for what things it could address are quite vast. Absolutely. It's a totally new and exciting technology. And at the moment, it's obviously been applied to the most pressing, urgent priority. But that I think we've really scratched the surface of how that could impact health more broadly. And also in terms of preventative health, clearly vaccines are a preventative measure. And if these can be applied to some other chronic diseases, then actually that could really be quite a step change in terms of not just the implications clearly for patients, but what we've seen why the pandemic's had such a big impact in many countries is because this rising demand for healthcare, because the complexity of patients' needs, health needs, if actually some of these technologies can be helped to stem that, then again, that could really sort of transform how healthcare is delivered more generally. Fantastic. Well, I think that's probably all we've got time for, but that's such a lovely positive note to end on. Johnny, thanks for joining us again. What's the one thing that you'd like listeners to take away from this episode? I think my key takeaway would be the understanding of risk and that all risk is relative and that when we go about our day-to-day lives, but also with any therapeutic that we might take or any medical intervention, there are risks and benefits. And that's why clinicians, when they're sat across you in the room or policymakers, very much weigh up the risks and benefits. And if it's a clinician sat with you, we'll go through those with you because it's about what's best for each individual at the time. But that it's really important both to see the risks and benefits and what they're compared to. Yeah, it's a good point, isn't it? And it's a crazy thing when you think about it, because the risks we're exposed to and the risks we take on just in everyday life is kind of enough to make you want to never leave the house again, quite frankly, sometimes (laughs) when you really think about it. But we accept those as part and parcel of life. And actually, we live in quite a low risk world, but relative to other things, but relative is what's important. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's relative risk. And then from a public health perspective, it's always what is the risk? And then what's the imposition of the intervention? So seatbelts, clearly have been hugely beneficial and how much do they impose on your liberty with that and that's where the debate always is in public health going through smoking banning smoking in public places and everything that goes with that and there's always that discussion around what's the risk who's the risk to and how much does the intervention impose on your or others liberties and johnny what area do you think has been the most underappreciated in all this over the last year i mean a lot of things have been discussed and have been maybe given a due profile or higher profile than they should have done but what do you think has gone a bit under the radar So undoubtedly, over the last 12 months, it's been an impossible job to be making any decisions that go on. And I think there'd be nobody who's either been in the jobs of making those decisions or anyone commentating on it who says that they haven't got things wrong or they haven't been proven wrong. And anyone who says otherwise, I think, is telling some fibs. But I think probably underappreciated is just how tirelessly, I think, 
many of those advising government or working in government, many of whom you or I will never learn their names, will have been working on this. And I think it's probably shown public service and civil servants in their best light, even if we don't often get to see that. But I think totally underappreciated really will have been how rigorous every decision will have been thought through and planned, all with the caveat of knowing every decision they have had to have made has been a bad one. And I think that's probably gone underappreciated generally. Thank well you. said. That's a really nice note to finish on. Thank you. Great. Well, Johnny, it's been yet another fantastic conversation. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks very much, Mary and Dan. Thanks, Johnny. That's all we've got time for this week on Investment Uncut. Please join us again next week for another episode. Take care. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.